Welcome to the Society for Neuroscience Neuronline podcast series, The Perils of Publishing. I'm your host, Paula Croxon, Assistant Professor of Neuroscience at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, and I'm excited that you're joining me for SFN's first podcast. Throughout this series of six podcasts, we'll follow the authors of a recent Journal of Neuroscience paper, John Chol Park and Beta McAdam of the University of Pittsburgh, as they take us through the journey their paper took from conception to publication and what happened afterwards. Along the way, I'll also speak to some experts in the field of publishing to gain their insights into the process. John Chol and Beta's paper, Anxiety Evokes Hypofrontality and Disrupts Rule Relevant Encoding by Dorsomedial Prefrontal Cortex Neurons, was published in the Journal of Neuroscience in 2016. It generated quite a lot of attention in the media, getting covered by a lot of social media hits and several blogs and news sites, perhaps my favourite of which is a column in The New Scientist entitled What Explains Brexit, Trump and the Rise of the Far Right? Let's jump into my conversation with John Chol and Beta in this first episode, Developing an Experiment. My name is John Chol Park and I'm a six-year graduate student in the Dinamo-Adams lab. The publication that we're going to talk about today was my first rotation project, actually. I'm, I'm glad that it's out now, and I'm uh, working on my second project and put them together and getting ready to graduate soon, hopefully. My name is Bita Mogadam. I am the professor of neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh. I have had a laboratory for about 28 years now, <laughs> a long time. And Jun Chol is currently one of my most senior students, hopefully about to defend in a few months. And this was his first authored publications from his dissertation. I asked Jun Chol and Vita to tell me a bit about the ideas behind the paper. So in the paper, we studied the prefrontal neural mechanism of anxiety-related deficits in flexible rule-based decision-making. Anxiety has been associated with deficits in flexible guidance of behavior based on rules. And patients with anxiety disorders show deficits and they show behavioral perseverance. So they have difficulties in shifting their behavioral strategies based on the rule shift. And animal models of stress and anxiety have displayed similar deficits that's shown in human anxiety patients. But there was lack of study that actually recorded from the peripheral neurons and what aspects of peripheral neural encoding of flexible decision-making goes awry in anxiety. So we combined the anxiety and neural recording, and then we studied anxiety-related deficits in PFC neural encoding of flexible behavioral guidance. Okay, if I may comment just a little bit as a background. So anxiety, of course, is heavily studied. And what we tend to do in the laboratory is study anxiety as a standalone construct, just what anxiety per se does to to the brain and to neural activity. What we wanted to do, what was really unique about this work and what's unique about Jun Chol's dissertation is that we are interested in what a background state of anxiety does on day-to-day behavior, which is really what he, people need to deal with. 
So the challenge for his dissertation has been to produce some background anxiety while animals are actually doing behavior, performing goal-directed tasks, and then look and see what happens when animals are doing the task with or without the background anxiety. So this was in the first series of that sort of approach. So Junchul indicated that this was part of his rotation project when he first started in the lab. So the initial idea for this particular project was mine because at the time he was just starting in the lab. As he has become a more senior student for his subsequent papers, he has really taken the whole concept to another level. He's designed a task that's different than what's being published, what has been published here. Having said that, ideas are cheap. And it was really Jun Chol who took upon himself to do this very tedious study and do all the beautiful and complicated data analysis that led to the work. Peter and John Chol explained a bit more about how this idea turned into a study. The actual state of anxiety induction is a pretty old-fashioned approach that I had actually used as a postdoctoral fellow myself years and years ago. And it's using a drug that essentially works the opposite of how anti-anxiety medications like Xanax work. So by giving animals this drug, you can induce a state of anxiety for an hour or longer. We started out by injecting the animals with this drug. And then when Jun Chol joined the lab, he essentially started by continuing the work and using, in addition to the drug, also running animals that were doing tasks that involved behavioral flexibility and recording from neurons in the prefrontal cortex. When I joined the lab, the project has been taken off already, and some of the experiments were done, and data collection was done when I joined the lab. The biggest challenge that I had at the point when I uh, joined the project was we're dealing with complex behavior, the rule-based guidance of behavior and behavioral flexibility, which involves a lot of different constructs to support an action. I had to really figure out uh, trials and errors, what data analysis, what matrix that we're going to use to break down the behavior and really figure out what aspect of the preformal encoding goes already with in association with the with the behavioral deficit that we observe. So that was really uh, the challenge and then we had lots of going back and forth between BI and I in terms of figuring out the data analysis. Yeah, when I uh, joined the lab, the good portion of the data was already there. We need to figure out was like how how do we analyze the data, right? Because the behavior is really complex, and there's a general choice there, and then that adds a lot of variables, right? So we had to really come up with good matrix for our neural data analysis, and then how we're going to associate the behavioral deficit with neural data. So that took a lot of going back and forth between Dina and I, and also including other co-authors of the paper. Would you say that you were planning while you were doing this work for how you were going to write the paper at the same time? Or did you think about the analyses that you were doing and then put the paper together afterwards? My general approach to science may be very unconventional in that we don't think about 
a beautiful paper to write. We think about the science, we think about the scientific question, and just let the results evolve. Just based on having been around for a long time, I have given up the idea of, okay, you start with this awesome project that you feel like you're going to lead into a high-profile paper and get the data. No, the paper wasn't planned. The idea was to just establish this model and think about how best design the experiments and then let's see how anxiety influences decision-making and whether we can actually come up with neuronal basis of that alteration decision-making. I asked John Chol and Vita about the challenges they faced while carrying out the study. For me, the biggest challenge was about the data analysis, and the challenge was coming from the fact that we're dealing with a complex behavior. There's a behavioral choice, and we're dealing with two different rules that animals can use to guide their behavior. And adding just one choice adds a lot of different variables in the task that can potentially compound the interpretation of the neural data that we analyze, right? So that was really a challenge that we sort of have to convince ourselves and convince others that what we are measuring in terms of the neural data is really the construct that we are saying that we're measuring, and then that's really associated with the behavioral deficit that we observed in our behavioral data. So establishing the behavioral and neural association was the biggest challenge that I faced during the process. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that is a big challenge. And so how long did the whole process of running these experiments take? Did it take longer than you expected? Absolutely, absolutely longer than I expected. And I had to run additional experiments to increase the sample size and to provide control data. So, yeah, it took was much longer process than I expected. Vita's comment that doing good science without the explicit goal of creating a beautiful paper got me thinking. I wanted to get more insight into how editors evaluate the quality of a study once a manuscript is submitted and what journals are doing to ensure reproducibility of studies. I started by talking to Mina Cavallo from the journal Cell about her experience. My role as a journalist, I'm a scientific editor at Cell. I've been at Cell for about three and a half years now. And uh, really the role of a scientific editor is to primarily evaluate the scientific papers that we receive. And then, of course, we have a host of other functions that we do. Just this this role of, of evaluating papers also, you know, is really conducted to communicating a lot with authors and to creating a lot of additional content that we do for our, for our journal. Across the neuroscience field, there is a significant effort to improve rigor and reproducibility. I asked Mena about rigor and reproducibility, and if Cell had put anything in place for authors to make sure that science is carried out and reported in a rigorous and reproducible way. Well, yes. So one of the duties of the authors of Cell papers, and I would say probably more broadly, is that they are going to share data and reagents with the community when the paper is published. And that's that's something that we are stating very much up front. We also have, uh, in addition, I think, to these mechanisms which most journals use to support reproducibility efforts, we are looking at a variety of other ways in which to enhance this process. And we also have an effort underway, which is really thinking or rethinking of how methods are presented in cell and cell press journals. And I think this is very important, something that we've heard a lot from the community in thinking in practical terms how we can ensure maximum 
reproducibility also by providing very clear information to authors and to making make sure that all the information that is necessary to reproduce experiments is actually provided in the paper itself. You know, this can be a challenge and that's why there's a project underway which is addressing these issues and that we are really excited about and that I'm actually part of, which is designing the method sections in such a way that it can be a very strong part of a manuscript and help authors use the results of the paper in a way that's going to benefit their efforts for their experiments. This is something that is right now undergoing here at Cell and we just started it. Oh, so, perfect. I mean, we've all had the experience of reading a paper and then realising we have absolutely no idea how a particular anal- analysis was done or worse, how a particular experiment was run. Is this going to be a separate methods section that goes in supplementary information or is this going to also be in the body of the itself? So one of one of the features of this uh, revamp methods is actually that they are going to that methods are going to become part of the manuscript. In fact, part of the PDF manuscript, which really the aim of this is to bring the method section closer to the manuscript itself, to what people consider the main paper. Because right now, methods are quite often relegated to some sort of a supplementary file, which obviously they work. But I think an even better solution is actually to really make clear that methods are really an integral part of a study, you know, and also in in this kind of very more symbolic way of making methods really part of the PDF that you are going to download when you click on, on the link of a paper that you'd like to read. That's great. I think that's really important. There's going to be some new t- new features, including some new ways of presenting reagents and resources that you are using, which hopefully is simply going to make it easier for either the casual reader who just wants to be informed about just generally what kind of techniques, what kind of models have been used in the paper, and also is going to be helpful for the in-depth reader who really wants to understand how an experiment was done. And so we really hope that this, this effort is going to address a wide span of readers and authors as well, because I think for authors it's going to be easier to actually provide the methods in this in this new format. After talking with Mena, I spoke with Katja Bros from the journal Neuron. Katja told me about her role at Neuron and a bit more about this initiative from Cell Press. So I'm Katja Bros and I've been an editor at Neuron at Cell Press for 16 years. I joined Neuron as a senior editor in 2000 and then was appointed editor-in-chief in 2004. So at Neuron, my role is as editor-in-chief of the journal to really guide the strategic and daily operations of Neuron. And that's everything. That's from um, deciding what the overall journal strategy and scope ought to be. That's that's um, reading manuscripts. I, I read papers that, that I handle, but I also work heavily with the rest of the editors on the Neuron editorial team to guide their decisions, to guide group discussions and decisions. We commission a lot of review content. I'm heavily involved in that. And then, of course, we, we do lots of other things like attending meetings, sort of getting a lay of the land of what issues the community is interested in. Um, so basically, guiding the overall strategic and operations of, of Neuron. There, there's sort of two projects that I can maybe point to that I think are quite interesting uh, from a journal and maybe from a how the review process at journals operates perspective. And one is that I'm quite involved 
in initiatives around um, some of these issues around rigor and reproducibility and, and the efforts that we're making at Cell Press to contribute as publishers to improving the level of rigor and reproducibility of what we publish. And that I find a you know, very exciting role in addition to what I'm doing at Neuron as editor there. So, so one of the roles that publishers have al always had is in providing a, um, a rigorous screening process for um, publications in the literature, and that, that is what peer review is about. I mean, peer review is um, about evaluating the, the technical quality of work, um, the quality also of argument and the cases that authors make in support of the advance of their studies. And that's been an important mechanism, I think, historically for really curbing errors in the published literature. I think um, it, it's been quite successful in that. But I think in the last number of years, especially the last five, there's there's been questions raised broadly, I mean, both within the scientific community, but also beyond as to whether the peer review process on its own is, is really enough. And um, that's been in response to some high-profile publications that looked at the ability to reproduce key studies. I mean, I think in the case of the original Amgen uh, publications, it was it was preclinical pre work, but this certainly isn't specific to preclinical work. And I think some of the discussions that have been raised around rigor and reproducibility have definitely motivated everyone in the field, but, but notably publishers, to really take a hard look at our processes and what we do and what we could do better. Another project is an initiative to really rethink how we present methods with the idea that in order to reproduce a published paper or frankly to even be able to understand a published paper, you really need kind of an, an in-depth view of the methodology that the authors carried out. And that includes uh, the reagents they use, the source of those reagents, the methods for the experiments, the methods for the analysis, statistics. You need to be able to know if you have questions about the methods, who you can contact, if you want access to data or reagents or code, who you could contact. And a lot of that information currently exists in papers, but frankly, I think we all agree that um, probably for worse, it's hard to say for better, <laughs> that methods <laughs> have sort of devolved de in their importance and in their sort of presence within the paper. And uh, the project we've been working on is really kind of to really revamp the methods um, in cell press papers in a way that allows them to be more structured, more transparent, um, easier for an author to really provide very complete information, and then in turn easier for a reviewer and a reader to, to really kind of be able to dig into the methods. And that's um, been a big project that we've been working on for about a year. I mean, we're really excited by it. We really feel like that it's certainly going to change, I think, the transparency of the methods that we publish at Cell Press. And we hope that other journals and other publishers might be doing similar things because uh, I think the methods really are core to really understanding what an author has done and certainly core to allowing the community to be able to build on and reproduce the work. Peter and John Chol's study is one great example of how an idea turned into a study even before the paper was thought of. We've also learned that there's more emphasis from within the neuroscience field, and also from the press, on reproducibility of studies and clear reporting of data, which will help scientists design good experiments and report our methods and results clearly. Thanks to everyone who shared their insights on what it takes to develop an experiment. Tune in next week for episode two when we'll talk more with John Chol, Beta, and more journal editors about how a study becomes a manuscript. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or find full episodes on Neuronline at neuronline.com.
www.sfn.org forward slash podcast. I've been Paula Croxon, and this was the Neuronline Podcast, The Perils of Publishing. <laughs>